Welcome to the Christchurch Conway podcast. We hope you find this podcast to be a resource that helps you grow in your faith through the study of scripture and theology. 2 Samuel chapter 7 is what we're going to be looking at this morning as we continue to work our way through these different texts that teach us about the covenants that God made with his people in order to in order to lead his people and in order to secure his kingdom. So we're looking at 2 Samuel chapter 7. I'm going to read the first 17 verses of this chapter. So let's give our attention once again to the reading of God's holy and inspired and authoritative word. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make your name, I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Most gracious Father, as we come once again to your word, I ask that you would strengthen me by your spirit, that you would give me words in my mouth to proclaim boldly the gospel of Jesus Christ as I ought, that your people might be strengthened. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, when we come to the Davidic covenant here, there's a lot of history that has led us up to this point that is important for us understanding what exactly is going on here. So so the first thing that I want us to do this morning is think very quickly about the, the kind of big context 
of the Davidic covenant. And to do that, we need to go all the way back to creation, right? Y'all saw that coming. Y'all know me. We're doing the whole Bible every week. We go all the way back to creation. And, And at creation, creation mandate, by the way, is the word I couldn't think of last week. Made sure I had it this week. We find the creation mandate where God commands Adam, be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth and have dominion over it. And what we saw is that that those commands that were given to Adam before the fall end up forming the, the promises, the basis of the promises of the covenants that come after. In fact, we saw with Noah, when, when God spoke to Noah, he said, be fruitful and multiply, but then didn't tell him to subdue the earth. Why? Because he knew he couldn't. Rather, what he did was immediately after giving that command again, he tells Noah, essentially, in the Noahic covenant, I'll subdue the earth. I'll make sure that there's springtime and harvest. I'll make sure that everything continues. Then we get to the Abrahamic covenant. And he he finds this barren couple. And instead of just commanding them, which they couldn't have done, instead of commanding them, go be fruitful and multiply, he says, I will make you that way. I will give you kids. I will give you more kids than the stars of the sky, more kids than the sand of the sea. We look at the the Mosaic Covenant and and these promises are repeated even even as we see those promises being fulfilled. And then we come to the Davidic Covenant. And and what do we have here? Once again, God saying, I will reign. I will have dominion. I will rule. I will be king. And and so what's fascinating about all of this is as we see those those commands that are given before the fall that we can't keep because of our sin, that Adam didn't keep, we we see them promised by God, I will do this. And we see them all coming to fruition in Jesus Christ. So that's the first layer of context I want us to understand about what's going on here. The second layer is, is I want us to understand, because sometimes we forget this, that, that having a king, biblically speaking, wasn't bad. A lot of times we, we start our thinking about biblical kings with, with 1 Samuel, where the people come and say, we want a king like other nations. And, and they're warned by Samuel because God tells them, like, hey, this isn't going to work well. We forget that if we go back to Deuteronomy 17, in the law... God gave rules for here's, here's what a king is to do and be. So let me read that for us real quick just so we have this in our mind. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. There's the key. One from among your brothers, you shall set his king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only, and here's where we see what a king is supposed to do. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him. And he shall read in it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of his law. 
and these statutes and doing them. Lost my place. Sorry about that. Uh, That his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So so what we see as we look at the story of David leading up to the Davidic covenant is that the problem wasn't that they wanted a king. The problem wasn't that they had a king. The problem was that they were looking for a king that wasn't the king that God chose. And they picked a king who wasn't committed to God's word and who wasn't committed to his law and who wasn't committed to not calling out to Egypt or the nations around them, and who wasn't committed to not exalting himself. Rather than choosing a a king according to God's heart, they chose a king according to their heart. And that's what the problem was. And so when we read the story of Saul, we we find out that that he's a train wreck of a king. Even though he's head and shoulders above the rest and supposed to be this mighty warrior, he's an absolute train wreck of a king. And so God dispenses with him. In 1 Samuel 9 and 10, Saul is made king. In 1 Samuel 13, he lasts a whopping four chapters. In 1 Samuel 13, God tells him, you're not going to be king anymore. I'm going to choose someone according to my heart. And then in 1 Samuel 16, David is anointed as king. He's actually anointed as king several times. He's anointed again in 2 Samuel 2 and again in 2 Samuel 5. Over and over and over, the the, the book of Samuel is all about showing that David is the king that God would choose. He's the king according to God's heart. He's the king who will reign and who will do what it is that God had called the king to do. And so we get to 2 Samuel chapter 6. And what happens there? He brings the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. He defeats the Philistines, the one people that God specifically told Saul to defeat, and he was never quite able to. Every time David meets him, he smokes him. This time he does it, and he brings the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel, back to where it's supposed to be. He, he, he's setting things up and doing what a king is supposed to do, establishing peace, establishing security, so that the people of God can worship God rightly according to his word. And as things start to fall into place, David kind of looks around and and takes an assessment of the situation. And he's like, wait a minute. I live in this great house, but God has nowhere. So he has this idea that that's an understandable idea. I want to build a house for God. And Nathan, the prophet that, that was kind of with David all along, It's like, look, God's clearly with you. Go for it. Whatever you do, it works out, so go for it. But then, as we read, that night, that night, God comes to Nathan. And he has this word for David that Nathan is to deliver. And and, and the word is, is the content of the Davidic kingdom or of the Davidic covenant. So in the first three verses of of chapter 7, as we've seen, we see David's desire. And then we get Yahweh's 
response. And his response essentially begins like this. Did I ask you to build me a house? No? All right. Well, then don't worry about doing that. Because that wasn't the thing that God had given David to do. God wasn't worried about whether he had some fancy house to be in. He's everywhere. He's he's, he's omnipresent. He's the king of everything. He doesn't need a house to prove his glory. He wasn't worried about that. He's telling David, "I I didn't ask you to do this. I didn't ask my people to do this. I've asked you to do something very, very specific. And so, so then he begins making these promises to David. After he says, look, you're not going to build me a house. I've never asked for that. I didn't ask anybody before me to do that. That's not going to happen with you. Instead, we get all of these promises. Thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be prince. I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. Remember, remember who supports who here, David. Remember who chose who from nowhere, David. Remember who has brought peace to the land, David. It was me all along. I'm the one that drove out your enemies. I'm the one that called you from being a shepherd. I'm the one who has exalted you. I am the one who has been with you and never left you. I'm the one that upholds you, not the other way around. So then he says, I've been with you. I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. There's the first promise that God makes to David in this covenantal section. A great name. Now, this should remind us of something, right? Because that was part of the promise that God made to Abraham as well. I will make your name great. And and, and you'll be a blessing to everyone. And and so what I want us to to see as we read through these is what we're going to to find as we look at the promises that God made to David is that they're, they're in lockstep with the promises that he made before. They're in lockstep with the promises that he made to Abraham. The first one is, I'm going to make you a great name. Then in verse 10, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. All right, now let's stop and think about this for just a second. This is kind of a weird promise to show up at this point in Israel's history. Why? Because they're already in the land. And they've already given, been given rest from their enemies. Remember, remember the trajectory of the story. That they're told, I'm going to give you this land to Abraham. And, and then through, through Joshua, they go in and they start taking the land. They divide it up. And you've got the situation with the judges. But, but eventually, they're, they're driving people out. And, and by this time, we read, now when the king lived in his house and, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, they're in the land. They're in the promise. And they, they've taken Canaan and they've got rest. But God says, I will appoint, future tense, a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. What's going on here? 
Well, what, what we see here is, is we have to start to realize that, that Israel, that this physical land was, was pointing forward to something better. It was pointing forward to something greater. It was pointing forward to, to the land, the, the field that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 13. When, when he said, when he explained that parable, what? I, I'll pull, at the end, I'm going to pull all the weeds out and burn them and do away with everything that is sinful and everything that is, that is tempting and everything that leads my people into sin. I will purify the land. I will establish my people. See, we begin to see here with the Davidic covenant that while, the, while Canaan, while the promised land does matter for the story, don't get me wrong, it does matter for the story, it wasn't the end-all, be-all of the promises of God, but was pointing forward to something better. It was pointing forward to something better that Jesus would secure, that we see come down from heaven, the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, John tells us in the book of Revelation. That's what was being foreshadowed. And we see that promised here. So again, another promise like what we see with Abraham, a place for my people and and peace and rest. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine living in a world of perfect rest? Where there are no more enemies of the people of God. Where there is no one else standing against Christ. Where, where, where Psalm 2 has been proven true and, and has been fulfilled to the end. Where all the kings of the earth and the rulers who set themselves against God and against his anointed, when they have been shattered with a rod of iron by Christ himself, and there is nothing left of sin among the people of God. Truly that is heaven. When there is no more sickness and there is no more death and we have been made perfectly, entirely righteous, no temptation to sin left in us anymore either. For we will have been purified. Rest from all your enemies. That's what that points forward to. Because that's what the king was supposed to do. He was supposed to provide security for the people of God so that they could worship God rightly with no threats. Not having to worship, wondering if someone's coming to attack, but can worship in rest and in peace for eternity. That was the king's job. And God is saying, that's what I will do for you. I will give you rest. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Remember where this started because there's some fun irony going on here. God, I want to build you a house. God says, no, I'm not asking you to do that. What's going to happen is I'm going to build you a house. And I'm going to establish your offspring. 
And there's that seed. There's that offspring. There's that promised kid that's coming once again. That was promised to to Abraham. That that, that was promised to to Moses in Deuteronomy 18 that a prophet like Moses is going to come and that's who you should listen to. That is promised here again. A seed of David. An offspring. And and, and what's what's this offspring going to do? I'll establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul. All right, now we've got some thinking to do here, right? Because if you've been around for a little bit, you know where I'm going with this. You know that I'm about to tell you in a few more minutes that that this offspring is Jesus. And, and, And you just heard me say, when he commits iniquity... And you're going, wait a minute. How can the offspring be Jesus and there be this statement when he commits iniquity? Isn't the whole point of Jesus that he was sinless and died in our place? Yes, a thousand times yes. So what's going on? Here's where we have to think carefully about how prophecy in the Bible works. We have a tendency to think prophecy fulfillment. It's like a one-stop thing. A prophecy is made here, it's fulfilled here. But in reality, what often happens in the Bible, as I've explained before, is that prophecy isn't just A, B. It's more like a rock when you go to the Buffalo River or the lake and and you're skipping rocks. And it touches down at all these different points, but then there's the place where it finally sinks. That's more how we should be thinking about prophecy. That there's, it's like a rock skipping across. It's all these touch points where it's fulfilled in these small ways until finally it finds its consummation there at the end. And so if we think in those terms, and and then we think about the rest of the story of the kings of Israel, what happened? God disciplined, I mean, pretty near every one of them. Because very, very few of them, I've been been reading through kings just in, in my own reading, and it it's shocking. I'll circle the name of the king, and then you skip down a couple lines, and almost all the time, especially in the northern kingdom, almost all the time it says, and he did not walk in the way of the Lord. Like over and over and over. And what's going on? And then they get like obliterated somehow. What's going on there? God's disciplining them. That, that's what's happening. He's doing exactly what he said here. These kings rise up. They, they build a share of They don't tear down the, the, the altars to Baal. They, they lead the people astray. They don't provide security for the people. They cut deals with other nations that they weren't supposed to do. They go back to Egypt to get horses. They have thousands of wives. They do all kinds of, of horrendous things. And God disciplines them over and over and over and over. But, but, my steadfast love will not depart from my offspring. And here's where where we're up against this, this hard reality. Is that God can love us perfectly with his steadfast love, entirely of grace, entirely of mercy, entirely freely given, and still discipline us for our sin. Not condemn us. Not hold us eternally accountable for our sin. But like a loving father, as the book of Hebrews says, discipline us for our sin without removing grace, without removing his steadfast love. 
like he did from Saul. And he says, this is what I'm going to do with these kings. And so what he's saying here is, David, here's how this is going to go down. You're going to have an offspring, and your offspring will reign on your throne forever. But when your offspring fails, I will discipline him. But don't dare think that me disciplining my people, my offspring, your offspring, don't ever dare think that that is me withdrawing my steadfast love. Don't ever think that that discipline is me ceasing to show grace. Don't ever think that that discipline is me saying, you know what, never mind my promises. It's not. It's not. My steadfast love will not depart from him. See, what we have to understand is that that, that you can have an unconditional covenant like this. You can have a covenant like this where God says, this is what I'm going to do. Because notice, he said, you know, it started when David said, I'm going to do something. And God's response was basically like, no, you're not. But I'm going to do all these things. And he didn't tell David to do anything. He said, I will, I will make your name great. I will give, give my, my people a place. I will give you an offspring. I will build you a house. I will establish my kingdom. God is saying, I'm going to do all of this. But yes, as a loving father, he does discipline us. My steadfast love will not depart from him. As it did from Saul, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, if you know anything about Israel's history, again, you've got some questions. Because you're going, wait a minute. That, like, so after David, there was Solomon. He already, like, you know, he had tons of wives. He didn't do any of the Deuteronomy 17 things. By that measure, he was not a great king. And then... In fact, like it got so problematic that, that you had David, then you had Solomon, and then Solomon's sons split the kingdom. And now there's a northern kingdom of Israel and a southern kingdom of Judah. And, and you're like, like, this grand thing lasted an entire two generations. And then it's falling apart. And if you know more of their history, you know that, that they go along and, and, and eventually in, in the 700s, the, the northern kingdom is, is run out of town and they're overtaken. And then in the 500s, the southern kingdom is overtaken and there's nothing left. And they're all in exile. How, how is someone still on the throne? What's going on here? Well, here's what we have to remember. God has not, according to his word, he will not remove his steadfast love. So this can't be the end of the promise. You read Psalm 89, and and they're wrestling with that question in Psalm 89. The psalmist is kind of looking at the situation going, I mean, it seems like the end. It it seems like we're done. I don't see how this works out anymore. So, So what do we learn from this? What we learn, we learn to trust God's word. Because when we get to the New Testament, there's two passages that I want us to look at this morning. There's a lot we could. There's two specifically I want us to look at. The first is Matthew chapter 1. 
Both of these are, are about the birth narrative of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 1, he begins his, geneal- his, his, his gospel with the genealogy of Jesus. And it's, it's, this, it's not a genealogy that includes every generation. It's a very, very highly structured genealogy that he splits up between three groups of 14 generations. And then he gives us the summary in verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Now notice what, what, what Matthew just did there in structuring this genealogy. He just summarized all of Israel's history around the promises that God had made them and then said, it all comes to Jesus. He started with Abraham. He went to David. He went to the exile. And then he went to Christ. What's he saying? In, in, his, in his literary way, what he's saying is Jesus, the Christ, he, he is the one who is the offspring of Abraham. He is the one who fulfills all of those promises. Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, he is the offspring of David. He is the one who fulfills all of those things. Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, he is the one who is the answer to the exile. All of it is driving to Jesus. Now flip over a couple Gospels to Luke chapter 1. And here we're looking at another part of the birth narrative of, uh, from Luke's gospel where uh, Mary is being told, that, you know, this virgin is being told by an angel that you're about to have a kid. She's got questions. She's troubled. Makes sense. And the angel said to her in chapter 1 of, of Luke's gospel, chapter 1, verse 30, and the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Do you see what's happening again? The the promises are all being fulfilled through Jesus. His kingdom that subsists in David's throne will never end. He will rule over the house of Israel. He's the one who's going to rule the people of God. And he's going to do it forever. See, all of these promises, as we saw with Abraham, as we see with Moses, as we saw with Noah, as we're now seeing with David, all of these promises come to fulfillment by God's design in Jesus Christ. He's the one that establishes his kingdom. So what does this mean for us as the church? Well, well, it means a lot for us as the church. One of the the big things that it means for us as the church is this. It is God who establishes his kingdom through Jesus Christ, not us. And in kind of broader church culture, we've got all of this language about being kingdom builders and, 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 and establishing the kingdom of God and expanding the kingdom of God. And all. No, we don't do that. I'm sorry. I, I, I know that it works great for motivating people and getting the troops out. We don't, we don't establish the kingdom any more than David did. Remember the promise. I will make your name great. I will give my people a place. I will establish my throne. 
I will give you an offspring. I will establish my kingdom. Establishing the kingdom of God is the work of God. And it was done through Jesus Christ. This is why when he showed up preaching the gospel, what did he say? Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. I mean, that seems like just the most audacious thing in the world. For some dude to show up who came from nothing and be like, hey, everybody, the kingdom of God is here. But it was. It was here. Because that's who he was. He is, Jesus is the son of Psalm 2 that God the Father has chosen and placed on Zion, his holy hill. And we see this when we get to the book of Hebrews where there he is on Zion calling all his people up to him. And the author of Hebrews says, look, we've come to Zion, the holy hill, that's not like Mount Sinai. It's not like Mount Sinai. It doesn't have the law sitting at the top. It has the Lord sitting at the top. It doesn't have rules that that, that are the way you make your way up the mountain. It doesn't have a fence around it because you can't even approach the mountain or, or you'll die. It has Jesus who has satisfied the law, who died for our sin, beckoning us, come to me and have life. Come to me and live. Come to me and be ushered in and brought in and grafted in to my kingdom because it will not end. And the author of Hebrews in in chapter 12 tells us this is what Abraham and all those guys were looking forward to. A kingdom that can't be shaken. Look, if it's up to us to establish the kingdom of God in this world, guess what that kingdom can most decidedly be? Shaken. Constantly. Because I can't and you can't provide the security, the rest that is needed in order for the people of God to be able to worship God rightly. We can't do that. We can't in any real way whatsoever. But what I can do is proclaim to you that Jesus has. And how did he do that? How did he do that? Remember back in Deuteronomy 17 what the king wasn't supposed to do. He wasn't supposed to exalt himself above the people. Now, kings are great at doing that. All the kings in the Bible, save Jesus, were fantastic at doing that. But then we come to Philippians chapter 2 and we read this description of Jesus. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus was the perfect king who established the kingdom because he walked perfectly according to God's rule. He didn't exalt himself, but humbled himself. He he was God and washed people's feet. 
He was God and touched and healed lepers. He was God and pursued sinners, drunks, and harlots, went after them to proclaim to them that they were loved by God. He was God and gave himself up for our sin. That was how. That was how he provided the security that we need to worship God. That was how he established his kingdom. By being the king that the Bible had long foretold and laying his life down for your sin and mine. Because God would never, would never abandon his steadfast love. That's what's going on with Jesus dying in our place, is God is upholding his steadfast love for his people and not abandoning us, but giving us a king who will establish us forever. So where does this leave us? As we face this world, we don't have to think, oh, somehow the kingdom of God and its stability is being threatened. It's not. It's not. Will, will people lash out against it? Of course. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? And the rulers take counsel, saying, let us burst their bonds. Yeah, people are going to lash out. But what's God's response? He who sits in the heavens laughs. He laughs. Isn't that cute? He's not threatened. He's not threatened by anything that we see going on. And so we, as the citizens of the kingdom of God, who have been brought in by the blood of Christ, we don't need to live as if the kingdom is threatened. We don't need to live in fear that somehow it might all end. It might all go away. Because it won't. It won't. Christ is on his throne and will be forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope of the gospel. We thank you for the certainty of the kingdom. And we ask that we would believe your promises. We know we will struggle to, for we are but flesh. And so we ask that by your spirit, we would be helped. That he would continue to intercede for us. That we could live with the confidence that our Savior reigns forever. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Conway podcast. We hope this teaching has helped you grow in the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God. Please feel free to share this resource so that others may also be strengthened in their faith through the study of Scripture and theology.